Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 32 of Impact Boom. My name is Tom Allen. I'm the director of Sun Positive, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Robin Dick, Program Manager of Social Innovation at Central Queensland University. Robin's a committed social impact, entrepreneurship, and business development expert with executive leadership and coalface experience. His passions are social innovation and entrepreneurship, social impact, and developing and implementing sustainable strategies. He applies these in collaborative and blended practice to change the status quo and create inclusive, positive social outcomes. His practical work experience encompasses the private, public, community and education sectors where he's successfully delivered sustainable social, health, environmental and economic outcomes for communities. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss Robin's passion in using social innovation and entrepreneurship to develop and implement sustainable strategies that create positive social impact. We'll talk about this ecosystem of social innovation and how it's not just all about social enterprise and impact investment. And we'll get some great insights and tips from Robin about the social innovation sector in Australia. Robin, thanks very much for joining us. It's a great pleasure to be here, Tom. Thanks for inviting me. Could you please share a bit about your background, Robin, and what led you to work in social innovation? Of course. Yeah, so what inspired me was I was brought up in a, in a fairly typical Scottish parish. Um, my dad was a minister and... Uh, yeah, it was it was my first introduction to an, an ecosystem of, um, well, I guess, socioeconomics and, and mm. fairness and, and the need to help those next door, as it were. Yeah. But yeah, that was that was a really good introduction. But beyond that, it was really my my, my time at university that, that got me into it. I can lay the the grounding with my father and, and that parish, but the the real interest came out of the university, mm. um, and that was during my postgrad and. I was going there to become what I thought would be the next kind of um, Coca-Cola executive and yep. go and sell it to the world and make a lot of money. But the diversity of that, that course that I was on in Glasgow was um, was really fascinating. There were maybe about 40 different nationalities on this course and, and many of them had come not just to kind of become the Coca-Cola marketing executive, but they'd come to actually use their marketing business talents to, to, to implement social good and environmental mm. change for that matter. And my exposure to, to those kind of people was, was really quite inspirational. Mm. Um, it was a changing point in my life. And so I turned my, my guys towards things which I could use my talents towards for a social impact or to have a feeling of, of doing something which mm. is good in the world. So with that, I, I kind of changed my tag. And that saw me kind of identify purposefully where I wanted to place myself. So having you know graduated from that, that um, post-grad, uh, I, I luckily found myself on this really exciting project about design uh, for dementia in mm. Glasgow in 1999 and, and it was a, 
at the well, it was quite a, kind of ahead of its, its time in the sense it was it was a multi agency collaboration. Mm. Um, it was bringing the health board in Glasgow together with the housing uh, associations and the housing um, department. It was bringing universities together, and it was bringing some of the leading architects and designers in Scotland together at the same time. Uh, and all to look at ways in which you can prolong independence for people with dementia in the community. Mm. And for someone landing <laughs> fresh from a change of, of heart, as it were, uh, and really being exposed to all this collaborative practice, human-centred design approach, I mean, sitting in, in hospital wings, watching people with dementia go about their daily task and watching their families come in and be embraced or not, for that matter, it was quite a, a, a kind of a, a revealing and, and crazy um, situation to be part of mm. because it's, it's heartbreaking to watch some of these people kind of, you know, be dismissed by their mm. own families. So, I mean, that kind of stuff really opened up my eyes to how observing and how being part of, of a, a, a team can really bring begin to bring about the changes which which mean so much to those people who need it, yeah. both from the, the, the people with dementia in this case, but also those the families around them and how it can help them. Mm. From that, I mean, I, I kind of, uh, we, we did some great conference stuff and that, that project has now become a bit of a, a heavily ref, reference one across the world in terms of dementia mm. and, and its approach and design, <laughs> the approach of design to dementia, sorry. But then from there, I kind of um, decided I wanted to kind of really get more involved in things. And, and um, so I was uh, able to join a project in Edinburgh, mm. having moved from Glasgow to Edinburgh. It's not, not that long a, a trip. Um, just down the road, just isn't it? Just down the road. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wee train journey or something. It's 40 minutes by car, so it, was, it wasn't too harsh mm. a, a move. But no, the other opportunity to join the Edinburgh Homeless Project, which um, again was a... Uh, international focused project, uh, transnational, European social funded, uh, and they are getting to engage with projects in Denmark, in France, in Greece, uh, and in Spain, mm. and and all of us using our our kind of um, experiences with our own homelessness projects to share and to collaborate and work out different ways in which we could engage, mm. and again with a very strong human centered design approach, but. Yeah. I think more more fundamentally understanding the cross-cultural differences and how people engage with things like homelessness, mm. uh, whereas at the time in uh, you know, some parts of the European Union were not engaging homelessness in, in quite a, um, a recognised way, yep. uh, whereas others were doing it quite fantastically, so like, you know, for the likes of Denmark and such like. So that was really, again, revealing and, and again, opened my eyes to the, the, the how you can work transnationally mm. uh, and kind of work towards mitigating uh, things like homelessness and also recognising that it's not just the, the observation that it's actually what's hidden behind the homes that, that really is the issue there. Mm. So it get opened up my eyes, the whole notion of uh, the hidden homeless as well. So yeah. um, that notion of not just seeing what you see. <laughs> yeah, totally. But then, yeah, I kind of used all that and I did got involved in consultancy across a lot of um, kind of human uh, human centered design approaches, but mostly around community master planning and, and small to large uh, community projects with things like community sports clubs, aged care homes, that mm. kind of stuff, but also uh, working in education and large school building programs, but in all cases trying to kind of bring new facilities, new infrastructure, new services to communities based on you know, thorough consultancy, you know, lots of um, mm. workshopping, lots of observation, consultation in terms of one-to-one interviews, group yep. interviews, all that stuff. Um, so that really immersed me in, in the, the complexity of community uh, and also exposed me very quickly to the notion of, of um, the, the different delivery mechanisms that can be uh, implemented or, or mm. kind of embraced. So, 
not just as you alluded to, not just social enterprise. Uh, very often that's the, the end game of a lot of uh, substance or investment in communities. So being able to understand the notion of formal groups and informal groups and, and, and how they come together and how they're powerful or not. Yeah. Um, looking at the multi-agency approach and also bringing in obviously experts and the notion of business as well and mm. that kind of uh, blended kind yeah. of uh, value uh, kind of approach. Did all that, had a heavy year, came on holiday to Australia and thought, oh, I should maybe be here to get some sun. <laughs> it's not too sunny in in the central belt of Scotland most most days. So um, yeah, I took it upon myself to come across and, and I tried to do the same kind of thing here and found probably not the, the, the same kind of maturity in terms of cross-sectoral collaboration and, and community mm. or, or even that, that kind of longer term vision of regeneration uh, and, and uh, um, social inclusion partnership kind of approaches simply because I think that uh, Australia probably didn't have quite as much as the of, of the disadvantage as maybe some parts of Scotland had had and parts of England obviously off the back of mining industry loss and steel loss and uh, in, in Scotland the, the shipbuilding loss mm. which had a devastating effect so we, we coming from quite dis- quite stark disadvantaged communities into Australia which has obviously very disadvantaged areas but not quite to the extent and, and, and concentration I think is, is what we'd expected mm. or experienced sorry um, so anyway, in Australia, didn't quite find my place in that that vein, but uh, ended up in education and in the university sector at RMIT of all places, and and helping to kind of put together a development uh, structure. So the whole notion of bringing money into the organisation to kind of uh, do some good research and help support students. Uh, and whilst there, um, got involved in in founding a a program called RMIT Seeds, which is basically inspired by a student uh, who had done some remarkable things in mm-hmm. Palestine and wasn't being supported by the university in the way he should have been, we thought mm-hmm. anyway at the time. And that was proven to be true. And so using that kind of energy and his inspiration to get a drive a student-led program there, which is all about social entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. social innovation. And that was really, I think, one of the most uh, rewarding uh, parts of, of my journey and um, doing that because it really inspired quite a few folk um, and then yeah I've kind of gone through a few stages of that and I find myself at CQ University running its uh, social innovation program yeah. uh, along with a really dedicated team and a real desire with the university to kind of embed social innovation as a core value. Mm, that's some really really great experience so tell us more about this role at Central Queensland University and what are the projects and the work that you're involved in at the moment? Yeah, so it's kind of it's it's early days. We're a young team. We're kind of mobilised and motivated around the, um, the university's uh, membership of the Shoka U Network, uh, which we gained this year in a rather nice wee ceremony in the United States. Exciting development. It is. I mean, we had the, the vice chancellor and, and a lot of the senior leadership team there, which is a great show of commitment from the university, which is great. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just the, the, the start of it. We're now beginning to really work hard to embed uh, social innovation as a thing within curriculum. So how do we do that, you know, with uh, making uh, materials available, so case studies, that kind of thing, but also working with our academic friends to kind of help them understand how they, to apply from a discipline perspective social innovation. And of course, social innovation goes back millennia, so there's a lot of stuff to work with. Um, and just kind of bringing that to bear and, and making people familiar with that. You can talk about mathematics, for example, and social innovation, it's there. So we're doing that kind of stuff where we're creating a, what we call a, a change maker program, which is a 
an entry level program for students so they enroll at the university and then between mm. that and landing at campus uh, they'll undertake this this modular approach and get to understand the basic understanding of what social innovation is in terms of things like the different formats social enterprise mm. uh, cooperative movements you know um, people-led movements that kind of stuff they'll talk about you know trends mega trends wicked problems They'll explore themselves, self-awareness, where they potentially land mm. or don't, yeah. <laughs> because not everyone will. Um, mm. But there's that, and, and then we're also looking at um, how we engage students extracurricularly, and, and we're doing that through a number of, of, of means. We've got uh, change champs, and we've got future students who are representative on each campus to take it forward. We've running, we're running studios in, in communities, so students get a chance to have a live consultancy, working human-centred design experience with community partners. Mm. That's been really rewarding, particularly for international students who get a chance in some cases to, to meet domestic students for the first time. Mm. So that, that's all great stuff. Yeah, fantastic. So between this experience at Central Queensland University and when we spoke before about you co-founding uh, the RMIT SEEDS program, what advice would you give to universities who are looking to develop these types of programs and what are the typical challenges that you've faced in working in the tertiary education sector? That's a really good question. Um, well, first of all, you're going to want to do it for the right reasons. I think if you're a university, you know, you could claim automatically that you are a social innovation. You're there mm. to provide, in most cases, free, accessible education. Um, mm. But above and beyond that, if you want to you know, really have impact beyond, let's say, uh, rankings or, or numbers of graduates coming out, surely one is to imbue upon your students or the, the provide your students with the armory, the toolkit to kind of go out there and make good in the world. So where do you start? You start, first of all, with, with students who are doing it already. Mm. Uh, and universities are full of those kind of people. They're often not the ones that are in your face. They're not the ones who are part of the leadership programs. They're the ones who are just getting on with it. Um, they're quiet, they're introverted. They're doing it with other partners. You, know, you name it, they're there. Um, you just got to try and find them. Mm. And if you can find one or two of those people and get you know, tapped into the network, get to do some showcasing, you know, show them you know a bit of interest and, and really get to understand what makes them work and what motivates them and, and get them to co-design with you then there's nothing to really stop you but it's got to start with the students it's got to be something that they link into bind with because they will sustain it but with that obviously you need to provide some structuring uh, you need to provide some staff or, or employed commitment around that, that that helps them to kind of do the things which they're not able to do I mean mm. um, when you're young in most cases and uh, you're, you're, you're doing these things out of a lot of naivety at times or you're driven by things but you don't necessarily understand some of the nuances of a business case or how to write a position description or how to run an event or do a pitch or that kind of thing those are the kind of the, the framings that you need to put around these people to give them that support mm-hmm. um, and that that's a really time consuming uh, but rewarding activity and it does take a lot of time and buy-in from other parts of the university so you've got to get the old people to understand why you're doing it and you've got to have a real purpose around it and, and be able to evidence where the outcomes are coming for the university as a whole not mm. just from a short term you know one or two students doing something remarkable I yeah. think um, you've got to really be in it for the long term and yeah it is rewarding because you do find that uh, where you begin to get this kind of activity and energy other people and other organisations gravitate towards it. And so you do have a, a great, and this is the wrong probably approach to, to, to talk about the branding element of it, or being the, the reputation mm. element of the, the university driven by the, the vibrancy and the energy and the, the goodwill and, and the outcomes of the students.
Yeah, that's some really, really interesting perspectives there, Robin. So how have you seen the social innovation sector transform over the last five years or so? And where do you see this heading into the future? Mm, uh, interesting. <laughs> uh, the last five years. So uh, in those five years, I've been, uh, I've lived in a couple of places in, in Australia, having landed in Melbourne, first of all, coming up to Brisbane, then going back to Melbourne again. So I've had an opportunity to see, you know, the, the landscapes in both and how they've maybe evolved over that time. Yeah, I think there's a lot more external externality coming into the sector than, than there was in the, in the past. Mm-hmm. I think people are beginning to realise that, yeah, there's great stuff happening here, but there's also great stuff happening elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not bad to benchmark. <laughs> and again, I mean, this great stuff has come from Australia and been, you know, been, been um, celebrated. I mean, things like the Royal Flying Doctor Service and uh, School of the Air. I mean, those are some of the great social innovations. And I mean, if you want to go back even further, fasting, farming, that kind of stuff from the indigenous uh, uh, people of, of Australia. There's a lot of good to be to be, be benchmarked, and I think we're seeing more of that now. I think we're, people are more confident to go outside and and, and take it on the chin, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's good. I think trusts and foundations are beginning to wake up more, and I think funding is, is a real issue in, in Australia around social innovation, social enterprise, social entrepreneurship. I think we're we're beginning to now see that the the move towards seed funding and and um, a greater confidence around collaborative practice with the trust and foundation sector which mm. hasn't necessarily been there in the past and which I think is helpful. I think banking and insurance are beginning to, the, the corporate sector are beginning to uh, leverage the opportunity more by putting some, some coin in the game as it were. Again it's still very much social enterprise focused mm. um, and whilst I'm not against that I think it's a great thing. I think yeah, again yeah. part of the benchmarking practice we need to understand is social enterprise emerged from, from disadvantage and, 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 and complex situations in, in, in community. And very often, social enterprises, the emergence of that confidence and, and that kind of notion of we can look after ourselves, we can create a, a local economy. And I think sometimes we, 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 we've, we've tended in Australia to grab these things as silver, shiny things and think of it as some kind of way of filling a, a void. And I think sometimes you're just going to have to recognise that that's not the way to do it. We actually have to put the hard yards in here as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to look at communities as a population, not just as single theme issues. I mm-hmm. think we need to look at, you know, here's a population of people, as with most populations, particularly we're talking about disadvantage, there's unemployment, there's uh, domestic violence, although that happens in all, all communities. Uh, there's obviously um, uh, gang stuff, there's territorialism, there's health issues. You know, you, you have all these things that, that have manifested because of the lack of focus and hope and that kind of thing. But mm. uh, to, to really work hard on that stuff, you've got to get in there as a, multi, a multi-agency, as a multi-sectoral uh, kind of uh, force, as it were, and, and work with the local community and help work with them to enable them to determine their course and the ways in which they want to be supported mm. to some extent. Mm. And there are times and places for the, 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 the kind of... Um, emergence within that partnership of the corporate sector and that kind of thing. But I think in the, in the foremost times of those kind of approaches is that you've got to understand you can invest a lot of money, you're not going to see a lot of return, well, not for a very long time, mm. and you're going to be patient around that stuff. So I think that's where we're beginning to move towards here in Australia now is that notion of taking time to look at postcodes, not just looking at the the themes. Mm. And I think, I think if we can do that and, and mobilise the trust and foundation sector, the government sector, uh, the impact investment sector, those kind of things, but have them recognise where they flow in that pipeline. I think we'll see so- social enterprise emerge as a real force where it's needed. Hmm. Very, very interesting. 
Robin, you're an accredited action learning facilitator. So what exactly is action learning? What sort of outcomes can come from this and how's it used? Right, so I, I first actually got involved in action learning through the School for Social Entrepreneurs here in Australia and, I, mm. and it was one of these things, I was kind of going, you know, what is it myself? And, and yeah, I, I, I got involved in it and, and it's, it's learning by doing. It's, it was created back in the 1940s by a guy called Reg Revens who'd been a professor at Cambridge and he'd worked uh, an executive within the National Health Service in the mining sector and, and the, the, the British coal uh, and recognised that you know, there was a, a need for peer support. Uh, and so this notion of sharing your experiences, sharing your uh, your challenges, and doing so in a very safe environment, mm -hmm. uh, and being supported in a way where it's not a direct way, it's actually a very curious and open way. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is a very powerful tool if you can get the group right, uh, and you can uh, get the right kind of, uh, it takes a bit of time and training for the, the, the group to work effectively together, but once you get that going, you, f you find some real, uh, really, um, um, uh, positive outcomes from what are quite challenging situations. Mm. So in this case, um, working with social entrepreneurs through the SSE, but also uh, generically now taking that into my work and practice uh, and using some of the, the principles and, and approaches with that is, is actually very powerful too uh, mm. in the sense of thinking about you know, the, the whole kind of act, um, reflect, conclude, plan, model, and that notion of you know um, constantly trying to evolve that uh, and not getting stuck mm. uh, and then looking at how you work, look at behaviour change within individuals but also within groups and, and I think uh, if you can if you can embrace that and, and, and work with that as a, as a social entrepreneur uh, or someone who wants to enable social entrepreneurs I think that's a really it's a, it's a powerful way of, of uh, working with others in a collaborative sense to help enable them to move forward with their own challenges and problems. Very, very interesting. So how do you believe government then can best support the social enterprise or social innovation sector? And what do you think can be changed from a policy perspective to better enable organisations and institutions to create positive social change? Wow, big question. Um, it's a toughie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, government has a huge role to play. I think sometimes we, we, we don't recognise that or we, we, we feel as if other parts of the, the ecosystem will, will take its place, and I don't think it will. I think um, it, government exists for a reason. It's there as a societal construct, and we've decided that, um, and everything else sits within it to some extent. So we've got to see it for what it is, and, and that it's, it's, a, it's a way of enabling those within the community who aren't able to sustain at a, at a point in time or who are marginalised, who are disadvantaged, the government's really there to help support that group and, and bring them out of that. And, and it, it needs to um, be part of the solution at all in terms of policy, but also in terms of enabling the framework to come about in, in let's say, community or in terms of populations again. How do, how do we um, ensure that people have a safe place uh, to, to kind of move out of, of hopelessness and to, to a greater outcome. Government plays a huge part in, in, in uh, social innovation. Uh, it provides the, 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 the legal frameworks, it provides the, the ability to, to be um, protected through welfare, uh, the ability to have be employed, that creates or helps to create the right kind of job market. It should be there to help look after those within a failed job market. Hmm. I think when it comes to things like social innovation, it should be enabling that through education, so it plays a strong part in terms of the policy creation for education. Um, I think it, it, it's there to, to choreograph 
the funding mechanisms around uh, how we bring people um, out of disadvantage and, and how we help them to become reskilled or to have a, a healthier outlook in life or to be healthier. I think they provide the kind of things around um, planning uh, and, and regulations around that. So how we organise our, our um, place and space and community, I think mm. that's fundamental. I think if we are going to move forward in Australia in a great vein, we, excuse me, have to start looking at place and space, uh, not developer-driven outcomes. And again, that's a government uh, control mechanism. Do we um, put policies in place which actually put the onus on the developer to go and consult the community mm. and work with community? Obviously, they play a very strong part in things around social procurement uh, and the notion of public-private initiatives or, or you know blended value opportunities, and, and, and they really are the, the, the kind of foundation for all of that. Um, and I think uh, for us to, to move forward again, it, it takes the government to bring the, the corporate sector, the not-for-profit sector, and the investment sector together in community to try and work together to work at, at the long term. Uh, opportunities to move people out of disadvantage. Mm. So, I mean, you've worked overseas in a number of continents. So which countries do you believe are at the forefront of delivering innovative social impact initiatives? Yeah, well, it kind of always comes back to the Nordic countries somehow, doesn't it? Um, Finland is always there, and, and, mm. and, and rightfully so. Um, I mean, if you look at the historical kind of... Um, regeneration of Finland, it was the poor man of Europe in the 50s, who had the, the highest levels of heart disease, suicide, you name it, it was their life expectancy, and, it, and, it, and it, it made a commitment, the government at the time, bipartisanly made a commitment to turn it around, and they've done that, and they've done that through mm. you know, government policy, they've done it through providing the right kind of resources and, and access to, to health and well-being, all this kind of stuff, and, and, and obviously education has played a huge part. The other part that, that they do really well is the whole design part. So that notion of community and bringing people together and thinking about the environment which folk will exist, not for now, but also the future. Importantly as well, they're, they're quite happy to tax people quite highly and people are, seem to be quite happy to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is in itself, I think, shows you how mature their thinking is. I lived in Germany. Um, Again, very similar to Nordic countries in terms of its connectivity, its, its kind of social support, that kind of stuff. It's its commitment to health and well-being, sport, everything else, community development, sport. Those things are, are fundamental for moving our, our country forward. Uh, Scotland, um, yeah, it was a bit like Finland. It's moving itself a bit out of that. It's used kind of um, opportunities to kind of get healthier and, and, and kind of look at mental illness, that kind of stuff. Mm. You know, we're in a, a very dark country, but we've got a history of innovation, history of, of social innovation. So um, that, that, that kind of puts us in quite a, a, a high setting of, of kind of experience. Yeah, I mean, the other parts of USA lived there as well. I found that really difficult, very challenging, um, very transactional, in some cases very superficial. But that's not to say they don't have amazing things going on in social innovation, which mm. they do. I mean, they, they've got you know, some equally highly disadvantaged areas and with more uh, complexity with like guns and everything else, which, which don't necessarily exist in where other parts where I've lived. But yeah, they've, they've kind of... They're a mixed bag, the United States. They've got some incredible stuff going on in terms of how the philanthropic sector have led, uh, you know, population-focused and, and community-focused uh, long-term engagement. But at the same time, they've still got this kind of, um, uh, the huge gaps in welfare support and, 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 and uh, even, like, health insurance and stuff, which, mm. which we all take for granted through, you know, universal health care. And I think that's something, again, uh, which t- distinguishes what I think to be a, a social innovation 
conscious country is that they do provide that kind of safety net and mm. the notion they put they put a, a focus on health which is as we know the one thing that helps us all to kind of continue in our economic output mm. yeah. um, so you've seen a number of these interesting initiatives around the continent so in your experience then what have been the most common reasons why new social change initiatives fail yeah good question well i think in most cases uh, it's, it's the, the environment the timing is wrong and I think that's that's often the the learning process that you go through is that you, that you try something it might not work at that time and maybe it ruminates or it stays for a while and then goes off but then eventually the time comes for that to be addressed but um, that's I think one of the, 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 the most difficult things is that you, you think you can do it and then you can't because the timing is wrong I think um, yeah access to, to um, support and expertise is, is what the other one so if we see the, the kind of not-for-profit sector just now, this push towards more professional driven organisations or mergers or that kind of stuff, then people or groups, governments groups, need support around that. Uh, and just now we don't tend to have enough of that or enough of a coordinated, coordinated approach around some of that stuff. Mm. I think there's, uh, yeah, enough time. Time's a huge, huge issue. I think that that's one thing that, not, not in terms of timing, but in terms of giving organisations, communities, programmes, projects, ideas, time to, to kind of uh, mature, be tested, to fail, but to still stay true to that course. Uh, very often we, we see the short term uh, and we, we see it as a transactional thing. We don't tend to see the long term and the outcome thing. Uh, mm. And again, that's where I think we, 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 we fall. And again, external, external pressures are, are hard as well. And that's more from an individual perspective too. So when you look at social ent- entrepreneurs or entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, You've got that person who's driving forward passionately and they're burning themselves out, but they need that support from the family, their management, mm-hmm. whatever. And very often that's not understood clearly by their support team, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we need to do more to, to kind of support those or provide the, the understanding around the people around them. Mm, very interesting. So if we were to create that perfect support network, what particular social problems in Australia would you tackle first? Which ones do you think really urgently need to be tackled? I will land all, always on those kind of populations which have been in the shit for a long time. So those long long terms, you know, socio-economic depressed populations where you're in your third or fourth generation of unemployment or, or, or you know, close to being unemployed or working in the very working the breadline as well. I think those are where you start. That's who needs it most. That's where you, you, you focus all your you kind of your blended sector of you know value and your your you know concentration of dollars should go into those places first and help mm. move those people into a much better place and space. We're a very rich country and economy. There should be no no excuse for those populations to exist, and yet they do. Um, I think the other thing that goes with that in Australia in particular is the whole whole reliance on pokies. Uh, particularly in community to drive income, which is perceived to be a social thing, and it's not. It's it's it just makes the problem worse, and it, it it's glaringly obvious it does that. Yet we still enable it to happen, and, and we still see even councils and governments uh, putting their kind of sustainability hopes upon how many pokies you can put into a local community mm-hmm. asset to, to kind of run whether it's sport or not. Does it relevant the end? I think that's I think it's obscene. Uh, I think that's one of the things I look at. Is, Getting rid of all that, not seeing the the delivery of, of community services and, and, and sports programs, whatever, reliant upon 
something which which absolutely just destroys you, um, mm. the community in itself. Anyway, I think it's just ludicrous. Yeah, absolutely. So, have you come across any really inspiring projects or initiatives recently that you'd like to share? Yeah, I was I was at a recent um, I think it was a Melbourne tourism event of all things, and and there's a guy called Andrew Kalish from Brooklyn, uh, an organisation called Downtown Brooklyn, who's presenting on on how <clears throat> Brooklyn had become a bit of a, a economic powerhouse, uh, but not through the normal kind of approaches. Instead of you know um, following or, or, or looking at the usual gentrification process, which have been an area which we consider to be quite disadvantaged. Um, likes of Harlem, for example, which has become quite gentrified. They, the, 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 and it was funny. It came from the the kind of the property developing part of of, of Brooklyn. Uh, so the property developers came together on mass and said, "We want to grow this area in a way which which we can make money over the long term, but gradually, as opposed to trying to push the prices up really quickly." Uh, but we know that if we want to do that and retain that kind of gradual and continuous. Uh, um, uh, generation that we need to ensure that there's a real mix of people in the Brooklyn. So the people who've lived here for a long time need to be able to stay here. Mm. We know that, that there are some cultural icons here and your know, sneakers and stuff which need to stay here because that's the the ration the rationale as to or the reason as to why the brands become strong is because it's drowned in Brooklyn. And so this whole kind of what would be seen to be the kind of the money making part of town actually set up a not for profit to look at the the kind of the regeneration of Brooklyn, but in a in a very kind of um, multi uh, sectored way or multi um, agency supported way, they looked at the whole kind of um, planning elements around buildings. So you know the notion of the, you just build as high as like as a developer. No, you, if you're going to build that high, you're going to have to put two or three publicly accessible or publicly run initiatives at the bottom of the buildings. So there's this kind of um, really kind of multifaceted, community-engaged approach to building a vibrant community which involved every socioeconomic group. Uh, and I found that fascinating. And they'd done that with a long term. And there was real vibrancy. And, and you know, they brought you know, from something like 2,000 people living in the central CBD area. They brought the next 60,000 people living there. And there a mixture of students and universities have moved in. And other types of organisations, healthcare organisations. It's just become a really vibrant community, but non-gentrified, so mm. it's affordable. And so people can live there and, and mix, and it's great. It sounds like a, a really nice approach. And it's something that we've kind of, or I've, I've come across in other parts of the world, you know, in Glasgow in particular, mm. where there's been that approach as well. And it does work, um, but it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of long-term visioning. But it just shows that the economic part of it can be, can be even uh, improved if you take time to kind of uh, enable people to of all walks to kind mm. of stay within a what would be their their own pad their own yeah. Yeah, yeah. hood <laughs> very very interesting so to finish off then robin are there any great books that you'd recommend to our listeners yeah there's those three I've, i think i've given you um, <laughs> why nations fail um i think is is is, is a fantastic book that looks, that looks at you know Extractionist ex- economics across the world, you know, goes back historically to the you know the Spanish and the, the Portuguese and then the British and the East India Company mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, and then how the, those kind of historical elements have, have brought about, you know, a capitalistic approach which is now starting to see nations fail in some respects, both economically but also in terms of cultural mm-hmm. um, elements, and we're seeing some of that just now, aren't we, through other parts of the world, Brexit, you know. 
they're kind of the choice of president of the United States. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really fascinating understanding of why particular parts of the world choose a particular economy. Um, and that sometimes that's their choice and sometimes it's not. Mm. Um, but in all, in, all, in all elements, there's a historical kind of trail that sits behind it. And, and it's one of these things that makes you realise it's important to know your history. Mm. Uh, Collapse, oh, brilliant book. Um, that was turned into a documentary as well. I think it? you're right, yeah. I mean, Jared Diamond, I think he's brilliant. Um, he just he just cuts into it. And he looks again historically at different kind of into cultures that have risen and, and then failed um, and, and collapsed. Uh, and looks there's a really nice chapter in Australia in there which really just highlight the fragility of the, 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 the landmass we live on uh, and how important it is for us to, to recognise things like climate change and over um, um, uh, working the soil and, and that kind of thing, agriculture and, and choosing the right kind of ways to, to, to kind of live. And yeah, it's fascinating, mm. great book. Uh, and then one that I put there was uh, The Prince of Waiting. I, I read that when I was like a kid, and it was just this fascinating kind of look at you know, post-apocalyptic kind of Britain and, and, and how things have resorted back to very basic living, but then still this desire to have power. And then uh, and all, and all the way through, there's this kind of, kind of secretive organisation, which is basically, you know, kept all the, the bad things and was just waiting for the right time and it's it's just a very revealing book for a young person to read and I found it fascinating. Mm, well stick yeah. all of those books to our reading list that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> Robin thanks so much for your time and for your generous insights today we very much appreciate it and we hope to touch base again in the future. Yeah it's been a pleasure thank you. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.